0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with a dead faith, faith in works, taming the tongue, a restless evil, and wisdom from above. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider.
1: the second stanza of the hymn, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives. Here, he forgives our sins with water and his word. The triumphant God himself gives power to call him Lord. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We will continue our series on the divine service with Dr. Arthur Just. We'll spend some time with him talking about the service of the Word and its relationship to baptism. And we'll go through listener email, the issues that set comment line, and round everything off today, teaching a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel, talking about Jesus' birth and his presentation in Luke chapter 2. Dr. Arthur Just is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke, and the book Heaven on Earth, the Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, welcome
2: back. Nice to be with you again to talk about the Divine Service and the liturgy of the Church.
1: Let's pick up where we left off last time. We were talking a bit about uh, how Christians view time and how that is expressed in the Divine Service, also big on the entire church year. Where did the church year come from?
2: Well, the church year is a, a very complex development. And in fact, there are is a a book by thomas talley on the origins of the church here that is as dense a book as you'll ever read i think in some ways you have to sort of piece it together but fundamentally it's it's pretty easy to see that christians inherited the recognizing of times in the year from the jews feasts so the feast of passover of course was the most significant one and that's of course the time when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. So that becomes, from the beginning, kind of a standard in every Christian church. And we talked before how early Christians kind of governed their life by Sundays, and that we always talk about Sunday being a a little Easter. Well, they would talk about the Pascha, the Passover, that would include Good Friday and Easter as a big Sunday. But you know the Jews had the Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, and early Christians began to recognize, especially after Constantine, that it was important to sort of observe the great events of Jesus' life. One of the earliest events was Epiphany, January 6th, with the coming of the wise men. Christmas is actually later. Sometime around, I think, 3.38, they began to have a Christmas feast in Rome. We could talk a little bit later about how that might came into being. But one of the things that Christians did, and it's really kind of brilliant, is they conformed the life of Christ and the events of his life with nature in the Mideast where the church year came into being. So what they did was at the end of what we would call the year, November, December, when the light you know, is kind of fading and it's getting darker, In November, they would begin to think about judgment because it's dark. And then Advent really began as sort of a seven week season that was November and December, then it was shortened just to December. But that also is a kind of a a time of repentance, John the Baptist being kind of the key figure there, but it would move towards the winter solstice where you have the, the darkest day of the year. And then all of a sudden, the great theme of Christmas and Epiphany is light—the light dawning, the revelation, the manifestation—and I always like to tell students that really Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany are all one season. You prepare for Christmas, which is sort of your climax, by means of Advent. It's sort of a porch to Christmas, and then you've got the, you know, the twelve days of Christmas. And then the Epiphany season really continues the theme that the light now has dawned and is being manifested and being revealed. So there's a, a real sense of how nature is playing into the formation of this great season of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Then, of course, it's becoming spring, and Passover is a spring celebration and new life, and Advent which is is about light, Lent and Easter are about life. And Lent, of course, is a, a deep period of penance. But originally, Todd, this is interesting, this this was the final stage for those catechumens, adults, who were seeking baptism, which would happen on the Easter Vigil. And almost the vast majority of baptisms in the early Christian church were at the Easter Vigil. So Lent, first and foremost for early Christians, was the final steps in a baptismal preparation. So it had a real baptismal theme. And in fact, I would say that the baptismal theme was even greater than the penitential theme. That certainly was there, but it was a a secondary one. So during Lent, on the first Sunday in Lent, actually I should say on Ash Wednesday, they would bring the catechumens forward, and then they would roll the ones who were going to be baptized at the vigil and roll them in these final 40 days before their baptism. Only secondarily would they bring the penitents forward and pour ashes on their head, which is where the word Ash Wednesday comes from. But that that was really, in many ways, minor. It In the medieval age, it becomes more major, and I think we've sort of inherited that. Although there are people that are coming back to the sense that Lent is a baptismal season. We're sort of gonna be accenting that here at Grace next year because we're gonna be doing something that is around that theme of baptism with the catechumenate. Anyway, once the, the life of Christ and the resurrection is manifest, the 50 days of Easter, the great they called it the great 50 days, was a time of just unhinged celebration about the fact that life now has dawned in the resurrected body of Jesus. And then Pentecost sort of brings that to an end. And what happens then with what we now call the season of Trinity or the season of Pentecost in the ancient world like like our world today, and I always think about this when I drive across Indiana in July or August, it's about the fields getting ripe for the harvest. And this is the time where It's Christian life. This is where we're all kind of looking to that moment of judgment when he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I think that's one of the reasons why the color for Pentecost is green, because the the fields are getting ripe for the harvest. And of course, at the end of that season, with the days getting shorter and uh, the harvest beginning to be brought in by farmers in October and even into November, you have this wonderful kind of year that is both first and foremost, the life of Christ, but also on the rhythms of nature. And what is fascinating to me, Todd, is that that Christians had this remarkable reality that the church kind of sees this rhythm. And what they did was they took the incarnation, Christmas, and the crucifixion, Good Friday, the two great scandals of Christianity And they established them to be the great festivals of the church year, Christmas and of course the Pascha, which is Good Friday and Easter. So that's just a very brief way of kind of giving you a sense of how the church year developed. And of course the saints days come in and and usually they're the days that are associated with the apostles and and the figures of the New Testament, like St. Matthew, St. Luke, Etc. cetera, St. John, some of the other, Bartholomew, the 12 apostles. But those kind of come in later, and they're on a particular day, not always on a Sunday. So that's, that's in a nutshell, I, I think, how you can describe the origins of the church here.
1: You had mentioned the, the occasion of baptism associated with the church here. What is baptism theologically and liturgically?
2: Well, theologically, baptism is the, for everyone, it's the frontier sacrament. It's where you, your flesh and Jesus' flesh are joined together through water, word, and spirit. And that is in a sense your entrance into the family of God, into the church, where you now become a part of this body of Christ, the church. For early Christians, liturgically, since it was mostly adults who were being baptized this was also where you now participated in the lord's supper so you now become a part of this community and you can commune at all the great you know every sunday obviously but all the great feasts and you are you are part of this rhythm and this rhythm really begins to define your life it's one of the things that i really love about being a seasonal pastor now and being part of the church and I live right next to the church in a parsonage, but I came here right before Advent, first Sunday in Advent, actually, and I'm going to be here at Lent, and I didn't realize how much I miss being intimately involved with the rhythms of the life of the church, and those who are, are baptized are invited now to make this kind of recognition of time, Sunday and the church here. And then... There is one other way of of recognizing time, and that is the liturgy of the hours, which are the hours of prayer every day. We can talk about that later. But baptism is what brings you and gives you the privilege of being part of this life, this life in Christ, and being part of the community, which is the body of Christ, and being a member of a larger eschatological community with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, to be able to participate in a church where heaven is on earth through the real presence, the bodily presence of Jesus Christ when we gather together around word and sacrament.
1: Dr. Arthur Just is our guest. It's part three of our series on classical Christian worship. On the other side of the break, we'll talk about proclamation, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, forming the essence of the divine service.
0: to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, lutheranpublicradio.org.
3: Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually and the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue
0: of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Simonex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Old Theology, New Technology. You're listening to Issues, etc.
1: Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
0: The people of St. John Lutheran Church in Lake Charles, Louisiana would like to welcome you to our family of faith. Come experience forgiveness, life, and salvation through God's work in word and sacrament. If you're in the southwest Louisiana area, we would love to get to know you. Join us for divine service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. with Bible studies and classes for youth, adults, and children at 915 a.m. Check us out on Facebook. St. John Lutheran Church, Lake Charles, Louisiana. The peace of the Lord be with you always
1: welcome back to issues etc i'm todd wilkin it's our series with dr arthur just author of the book heaven on earth the gifts of christ in the divine service on classical christian worship dr just how do these three things the proclamation of the word baptism and the lord's supper form the core the essence of the divine service
2: well they they are the way in which Christ comes to us. He has bound himself to preaching and the sacraments. And those two things are what is at the heart of how he promised to be with us in his flesh. And as we said before the break, baptism is how we are given the privilege to participate in the divine service. And proclamation is, and you know, when we talk about proclamation, it's not it's not like we, we usually think about a speech. This is a, a performative speech. In other words, when you hear the word preached, something happens, a reality is created. Jesus actually is present, you know, bodily in our ears. There's a there's a real presence in our ears. And he 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 comes to us in such a way that he really changes us and and he has an effect upon us, not just in a kind of a, an intellectual way, but he kind of, like in the sacrament, there is a, a communion with his flesh and it, and it comes through our ears. I mean, one of the ways I illustrated in class is, you know, how, how did the, the incarnation come about? I mean, how did Mary conceive in her womb by the Virgin Mary? Well, Luther's answer, I think is really right. He said that she conceived in her ear. In other words, she heard the word of the angel, Gabriel, and through that word in her ear, Christ was conceived in her. And in a way, that's how it happens with us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And and that's, I think, a a very fundamental way to think about why proclamation is so important. And that's both in the, the liturgy of the word, the reading of the lessons, and in the preaching, now obviously in the lord's supper it's a little more easier we should say to to fully understand because you can clearly see that there by by the word you know the words that are spoken over the bread and wine christ now comes to us in with and under those elements with his very body and blood and we eat and drink the body and blood of the crucified and risen lord And so these three things go together, and they're fundamental to understanding kind of the the very nature of why the divine service is so important. When we say word and sacraments, we do mean sacraments because baptism is our sort of our invitation, our ticket to participate in the hearing of the word and the receiving of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So these three things are absolutely the foundation of the divine service.
1: When we were talking about the church here earlier, you wanted to say something a little more
2: about the season of Christmas. Yeah. Christmas, I think a lot of people, you know, they wonder why the 25th of, of December. And it's a really interesting story in some ways. We mentioned the, the, the winter solstice, that there was this in, incredible, you know, pagan festival that everybody would, would you know, celebrate. And it was it was very tempting for Christians to be part of that early on. I mean, these pagan feasts were quite extraordinary, and they were ones in which you could really see that there would be a, you know, the whole city was involved, and Christians had a sometimes a hard time kind of resisting that temptation. And I think the church recognized early on that, Hey, listen, they're celebrating that kind of the darkness and then the, the birth of the light. We have the light of the world. We have Christ. We need to have our own festival here. Well, if that were the case, it would be the 21st of December, but they didn't pick the 21st of December. They picked the 25th of December. And the reason is, we believe, is that early on, the first day of the year for the pagans was March 25th. So there was a big festival then. And early Christians, for whatever reason, believed that Jesus died on March 25th. Now, in the ancient world, unless you were a really famous person, nobody knew when their birthday was, nobody knew when they were born. But everybody knew, for a famous person, when they died. And if Jesus died on March 25th, following kind of the the tradition at that time, even in the pagan world, that if that's the day you left the world, then that's the day you were conceived. That's the day when you entered the world. So if Good Friday, March 25th, was the day that Jesus died, left the world, so to speak, then that would be the day of the incarnation. And that's why the Feast of the Annunciation is on March 25th. You count nine months after that, and you have December 25th. Now, again, like I said earlier, the Christian church took the two great scandals of Christianity, Christmas and Easter, and made them the great festivals. By putting Christmas on December 25th, what the early church did was it united in one day the incarnation of Jesus, and the atonement of Jesus. So, in celebrating Christmas, and many people certainly preach on this, you hear sermons, you know, Jesus was born to die. And that's really clear in the Advent season, where the first Sunday in Advent is the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem for Holy Week. You know, why start the season going to his birth with his going to Jerusalem to die? Well, because he was born to die. And I think that is reflected in this idea of March 25th incarnation, atonement on the same day. A number of years ago, oh, it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago, you could look it up, but Good Friday occurred on the feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. And I begged my pastor to please allow me to preach on that day we do a Treori service, and he did. And I I love talking about that kind of confluence of dates and those those two great theological issues that come together there. And I I can't tell you how many people emailed me or texted me about that because they had never heard that. And I think it's just, I mean, it says so much about the theological character of the church here and especially of the Feast of Christmas.
1: What is the fivefold shape of the Lutheran liturgy?
2: Well, the fivefold shape, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it certainly is worth talking about again. Very simply, entrance rite, the liturgy of the word, preparation for the sacrament, the sacrament, and then the distribution of the sacrament. Those are the five shapes. Word and sacrament, they're the, the cornerstones, the foundations. I wrote my doctoral thesis on this. They go back to the table fellowship of Jesus, particularly as it comes to a kind of a a climax at Emmaus, where he taught them on the road, which was the liturgy of the word, and he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, which the liturgy of the Lord's supper. You can see that in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, I take that as the same thing. And then to prayers, which would have been the Lord's Prayer, or maybe some of the prayers that they would have used as the prayers of of the, the dismissal. But anyway, word and sacrament, those are the fundamental ones. And there's those are the ones where we're usually either standing or sitting, standing in the ancient world, sitting now, we're listening to God's word, or we're standing there or listening to the liturgy of the sacrament. The other three structures, the entrance rite, the preparation of the table, like the offertory, where we now sing, create in me a clean heart, O God, and then the distribution. I always picture them as circles because there's times of movement. When I became dean of the chapel in uh, Fort Wayne, our baptismal font was in the front, so we began the liturgy at the font with confession and absolution, and then I used the 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 Kyrie or the introit as an entrance rite to kind of reflect that. And when we would process during the Kyrie, for example, and I, as the dean of the chapel, I would chant, in peace, let us pray to the Lord, and the congregation would respond. And we'd be doing that as we were entering, because we're coming to the liturgy of the word. you know. And we would sing the, the Gloria in Excelsis or This is the Feast as we went forward, and then Kind of the end of the entrance right? is the collect where we sort of gather together into a prayer all the themes that we are going to see in this Sunday in which we're celebrating. Like last Sunday, the first Sunday in in Lent, we gather together in the collect the notion that we're starting this journey to Jerusalem. Then we hear the word of God. And that goes all the way through the preaching and oftentimes kind of the affirmation of that preaching by the, the, the recital, you know, the confession, I should say, of the creed. And then there's a time out where we go and we unveil the elements and in the ancient world, they would bring in the elements. So there'd be a procession again of the bread and wine. And they would sing just like we did with the Kyrie and the Gloria. They would sing Psalms and they would chant hymns. And, you know, like one of the ones that was the most common to be chanted was Psalm 51, creating me a pure heart O God. And then once the table is set and it's time for the liturgy of the sacrament, boom, you know, the Lord be with you. We're all kind of, kind of static, we're all standing still and and it kind of entering into this really sacred moment where heaven and earth now are coming together in the body and blood of Christ. Then after the Sanctus and the Sanctus leads into the, the climax, the words of institution. And I think I said this before, but it's worth saying again. The climax of the word service is the gospel, the very words of Jesus. The climax of the Lord's Supper, right after the Sanctus, which kind of prepares us for that, are the words of institution, where Jesus speaks again. But once the, the, the sacrament has been consecrated, the Agnes day was traditionally the first sort of hymn of distribution. And it's usually during the Agnes day that the clergy communes, and then the clergy goes out into the church or... Sometimes that people come to the altar and kneel, but anyway, the, the, the sacrament is distributed, and there's a lot of movement—people coming forward and going back—and we sing hymns, communion hymns, or psalms, or the choir sings because this is a time of movement. So those are the five shapes: word and sacrament, the two big ones, and then entrance, right, preparation, right, distribution, right.
1: Talk about how the historical liturgy, its texts are almost entirely scripture.
2: Yeah, that's that's so important for people to understand. When you look at, you know, and, and we we haven't really talked about these, I've referenced them, but there were originally four hymns that were almost always in the liturgy and they were fundamental to the to understanding. The Kyrie, the Gloria in excelsis, and these are very early. These are, I think the *Curiae* is probably in the second century. The *Glory and Excelsis is in the fourth century. Those are the two that are associated with the Liturgy of the Word. And then with the Liturgy of the Sacrament, there's the Sanctus and the, the Agnus Dei. Now, all of them are biblical. I mean, you can trace the Lord Have Mercy text to a, no, a number of places. Blind Bartimaeus. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. The idea of petitioning for mercy is a very important part of of kind of just the way people approach Jesus, and it's the first thing we do as we enter into the church. The glory in excelsis, of course, comes from Luke 2, the Song of the Angels, but then there was added to it, again, we don't know where it comes from, but this magnificent, Trinitarian hymn that is centered in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. So you have an echo of the Kyrie there, and you have a foretaste of the Agnus Dei. And of course, much of that Trinitarian hymn has biblical precedence. The Sanctus comes out of the synagogue liturgy. Most scholars believe that Jesus sang the Sanctus in the synagogue. It's from Isaiah 6 and Psalm 118, a combination of the two, and a great biblical hymn. And then the Agnus Dei, of course, comes from John chapter 2, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or maybe I, I, I misspoke. Maybe it's John chapter 1. I'm forgetting now. But anyway, it's from John 1 or 2. So, So these are biblical hymns. And then if you're singing Psalms, that's the scripture. You're reading scripture, Old Testament epistle and gospel lesson. The words of institution are from the scriptures. Even the language of the preface, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. You can find all those from the scriptures. The proper preface where we focus on the season, those aren't necessarily exact quotations from scripture, but they certainly reflect scripture realities. Years ago, Todd, I remember, this is during the worship wars, there would be so many people who would complain about the historic liturgy, this fivefold shape, this divine service, and they would say, ah, oh, it's, you know, we don't need to do that anymore because it's German, you know, it's a German liturgy and we're not Germans anymore. And, and you know, I used to hear that and then I would talk to them about it a little bit. and But I, I you know, I, I used to finally get a little annoyed, you know, and I remember saying to somebody once, kindly, but very pointedly, besides maybe the music, or maybe some of the hymns that we sing, name something in this 5 whole shape, this historic liturgy that I, and I had just laid it all out for him. Name something there that's German. Is the Kyrie German? The Agnus Dei? The Old Testament lesson? The words of institution? I would always tell them. You know if you want to know what the origin of our liturgy is it's really north africa we actually have an african and mid-eastern kind of a palestinian so to speak liturgy but it really comes from north africa because our western rite is the latin service that comes from places like carthage and and other places like that so yeah i mean our liturgy is completely biblical and this is one of the reasons why It's such a wonderful wonderful way of coming into the presence of god it's that wonderful statement of norman nagel from his introduction to lutheran worship where he says very simply that in the divine service the lord speaks to us and we listen and then we speak back to him what he has spoken to us and what the lord speaks to us is his word and what we hear is his word and what we speak back to him is his word
1: i'm todd wilkin your link to issues etc it's part three of our series on the classical christian worship with dr arthur just he's author of the book heaven on earth the gifts of christ and the divine service we are basing our conversation on that book and we are just scratching the surface you will want to read this classic for yourself call concordia publishing house 1-800-325-3040 Or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. On the other side, we will get into the service of the word.
0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with a dead faith, faith and works, taming the tongue, a restless evil, and wisdom from above. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15 minute, verse by verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider.
2: Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as this Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences.
1: A number of people have asked about Ad Kusum's process to order our faux stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
3: Hey, young adults, are you finding it harder and harder to meet and connect with other Lutheran men and women? Join us at University Lutheran Church in Champaign, Illinois on Saturday, April 6th for the Martin plus Katie Conference. We'll talk about being men and women in Christ, meet new friends, get to know each other, and have fun. Register at martinpluskatie.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-L-U-S-K-A-T-I-E dot org. Registration closes on Palm Sunday.
0: Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Dust to Dust. This is Ken Ham inviting you to discover the truth of God's Word at the Creation Museum. Did humans evolve from ape-like creatures? Well, consider this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death into creation. And Adam was told, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, God created Adam from the dust of the ground and gave him the breath of life. Once death entered creation, God reminded Adam that he was of the dust and he would returned to that very dust. God doesn't tell Adam he was an ape man and he'd return to an ape man. No, he confirms that Adam was made from dust and to dust he would return.
2: There's so much more to learn when you visit us at the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Kids are free. Plan your visit
0: at AnswersRadio.com.
1: The hymn, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives, stands a four. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's our series on classical Christian worship with Dr. Arthur Just. Dr. Just, walk us through the service of the Word, beginning with the invocation.
2: The service of the Word is part of this wonderful rhythm of the divine service. And Lutherans have always had a great sense of balance between Word and sacrament. But I think it's important to see that, starting with the invocation, we really are kind of preparing ourselves up until the time where we confess the creed and pray the prayers of the faithful for the reception of the body and blood. The service of the word kind of cultivates the soil and plants the seed for the growth that will continue and and in a sense come to a, a completion with the eating and drinking of the body and blood of the crucified and risen savior. The invocation is where we hear the, and and I always take the invocation as, as sort of a proclamation by the pastor that we are gathering as the baptized. I mean, there's always a debate. Does the pastor at the invocation make the sign of the cross on himself as if he's signing himself as somebody who is baptized? Or does he turn and face the congregation and make the sign of the cross over the congregation proclaiming that we are beginning this service, all of us, as the baptized? This is our way of entering into the service. The invocation now gives way to the confession and absolution. And this wasn't always part of the divine service. It's really, in some ways, a Reformation, post-Reformation phenomena. But it's so important today, and I think especially today because of what it signifies. When I teach about the ministry of John the Baptist, I talk about his baptism as being a baptism of preparation. It's a, a baptism that is a cleansing. It's a preparing the people through repentance and baptism, for the coming of this incandescent holiness that is the Lord himself, the Messiah, Jesus. And in order to enter presence for the Jews, you had to be cleansed, you had to be made holy. I think confession and absolution, in a way, accomplishes the same thing that John the Baptist's baptism did. We confess our sins and receive absolution so that we are, in a sense, declared holy, righteous, worthy to be hearers of the word, to come into the presence of God and receive his gifts in preaching and the sacrament. And that that absolution is so crucial to, in a sense, establishing our identity as the baptized who are ready and prepared and worthy to receive the great gifts that come in the word and the sacrament the kyrie we've talked about a little bit but it's really oftentimes misunderstood in the old you know lutheran hymnal we sort of reduced it to lord have mercy christ have mercy lord have mercy but the original kyrie was kind of a a responsive one in peace let us pray to the lord lord have mercy for the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. These were petitions that really are not penitential as much as they are a prayer for grace and help in time of need. These are the gifts we want. And the central gift, in fact, it's the word that's used more than any other word in the liturgy, is the word peace, for the peace of the whole world. You know, and if you think about it, All the way through, there's peace, you know, depart in peace. Lord, let thy servant depart in peace, according to your word. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. I mean, and in a sense, that's what we want as we enter in with the Kyrie, asking the Lord for mercy, petitioning him for these gifts. We want him to come down and give us this sense of shalom, this sense of, peace between God and man that was accomplished through the atoning death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, those petitions for peace and mercy and help, for the needs, this gives way to this glorious hymn. And we talked about it as being from Luke 2 and then this Trinitarian hymn. If you look carefully at that hymn in Luke's Gospel, it is associated with the birth of Christ. And it begins in a most remarkable way, glory in the highest and on earth peace among men of his favor. Even though we're talking about the liturgy of the word, I can't help but say here that at the end of the gospel, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, only Luke has very similar language. The the Benedictus, blessed the coming one, the King in the name of the Lord in heaven peace and glory in the highest. So there's glory in the highest at the birth of Jesus and at, so to speak, Palm Sunday, where Jesus is going to his death, and there's peace. At the birth of Jesus, there's peace on earth. At the death of Jesus, there's peace in heaven. And as I always like to say, in the incarnation and the atonement of Jesus, heaven and earth are joined together in peace. And that hymn, that Trinitarian hymn is to the Father, as I said, to the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father. Now, that's all entrance right, so that we are now ready and we have been prepared by confession and absolution by singing these glorious biblical hymns to hear the Word of God. And we mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again that the liturgy of the word comes right out of the way in which they read the scriptures in the synagogue. It's almost the exact sort of structure, except the synagogue started with the most important, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, whereas the church's Christian liturgy, Christian liturgy of the word ends with the most important the gospel so there's a preparation for the very words of jesus by hearing prophecy and the old testament always or it should always is related to the gospel lesson so there's a sense of prophecy and fulfillment that here you see the promise and then you see how that promise reaches its goal in the life of jesus and the epistle really early on and even now is oftentimes a continuous reading sometimes it's it is chosen to relate to the old testament and gospel but oftentimes it's like a reading through corinthians or galatians or romans you know or one of the the other epistles like the the Chahani epistles but it's a it's a gradual movement through scripture to the the words of jesus and in between we take kind of a little time out to reflect on each lesson by means of a psalm. So between the Old Testament and the epistle, there's the gradual, which is usually taken from a psalm. And I think that's a really missed opportunity for churches. Sometimes they're even too short, but this is where you could insert a significant psalm to really reflect on the, the themes of the day. And then after the epistle, what the church did from the beginning was either at the end of a psalm or just on its own, they would sing an alleluia. Because as Luther said, this is the pure gospel, the hearing of the words of Jesus in the holy gospel. And that alleluia is in the, in the ancient church, they were always standing. So they it wasn't a, a signal to stand up. But now when we hear that al- alleluia, we always stand up. And as many you know, if your hearers know, since we're in the season of Lent now, we forego the Alleluia until Easter morning or the, the Easter vigil on Saturday night. So those lessons lead to the preaching. And preaching has to be understood not as a um, kind of the, the climax of climax, but a continuation of the gospel climax, where the word is explicated and and that's not just the gospel it can be the the whole you know reading of the scriptures old testament epistle and gospel although most sermons should be on the gospel the words of jesus but that sermon having kind of explicated that it it turns towards the lord's supper it's the hinge between word and sacrament and it prepares people what i like to say is it creates a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and what I mean by that is that it creates this hunger and thirst for the very body and blood of Christ. So it's 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 looking back over the liturgy of the world, but it's also looking forward to the receiving of the holy sacrament. Now the creed comes. The creed is an ordinary, and it comes later on. It's uh, I think around the year thousand when it's included in the divine service, but the creed is so important because it's not just a confession of faith, but it's in a way a summary of all that we hold true from the scriptures encapsulated in a confession in a Trinitarian form of our faith. And oftentimes, it'll come before the gospel to kind of anticipate the gospel. Or in the ancient church, it was always after the gospel to reflect in the creed of what it is that we have just heard. And then we go to the prayer of the church, and that's, that's the final part of the Liturgy of the Word. You know, it's, it's where we, we pray for everybody. We pray for people in the church. We pray for the Holy Christian Church. We pray for missionaries. We pray for the persecuted. We pray for the, the needs in our world. We pray for our president and our governor, and we pray for the needs of the parish, the sick, the suffering, those who are grieving. And in the ancient church, the last prayer was a prayer over the catechumens, those who were seeking baptism, the unbaptized. And the prayer was called the prayer of dismissal. And this is where they would dismiss the catechumens, because they were not allowed to come to the Lord's Supper or even be part of the liturgy. So they would be moved to another part of the church, and the doors would be closed to sort of to keep them out or to keep the the faithful in. And, and that's where they would kind of gather together now for the sacrament. That notion of dismissal and closed doors, that's where the the notion of closed communion comes in that this communion now is closed for the baptized who to at least in the ancient church who would acknowledge their unity that there is a a sense of reconciliation here by exchanging a kiss of peace which only you know the baptized could do and it was something that the freedom of the gospel gave them to do and it was that kiss that then led to the second part of the second and most important part of the liturgy which is the liturgy of the lord's supper
1: why has the church used lectionaries with a few minutes here
2: well the the church has i mean the jews used lectionaries i think when when the jews gathered in the synagogue we think when jesus preached for example in the synagogue in uh, nazareth he preached on a lectionary that the the text for that day was Isaiah 61. That would have been the prophetic text. But the the Torah, many people believe, was Deuteronomy 18, even though we don't know that for sure. But a prophet like unto me is coming. Uh, listen to him, you know, the, the prophecy of the Messiah given to Moses. So Christians had embedded in their head that there was a sense that the the lectionary should be a part of of the church's worship. Now, the original lectionaries were a, what they call a Lectio Continua, a continuous reading of the scriptures, because they they didn't have all the, the books of the Bible. They, they would only have some of them, early Christians, because they couldn't afford it for one thing, and there weren't enough of them to go around. So when they had a gospel like, say, Gospel of Luke, they would read it, you know, for a couple of months in its entirety and read it again and again, and they'd read four or five chapters. We know that early Christians read the scriptures for an hour, and then they would preach for an hour. So it was it was an extensive use of scripture. And that notion of hearing the gospel especially, but even the prophets, you know, or the, the Torah, hearing it in a, a continuous order as it was written and as it was intended to be written was a very important part of how early christians understood the handing down of the faith that's one of the reasons why there was a development in the 20th century with this three-year lectionary where you would continuously read matthew and then the next year mark and then luke because they felt you know in the 20th century that we need more narrative and we need to hear the gospels as the the gospel writers intended it to be heard in a continuous way, pericope after pericope, because one builds on another. Uh, in the medieval period, there were a number of different lectionaries, but there was one that kind of came down to us that Luther sort of inherited called the historic lectionary. It's a one-year lectionary. It's wonderful for catechesis. It's got a long history. A lot of hymns and the like are, are shaped around it. But it, it doesn't have the the same sense of reading the scripture as the scripture was intended to be read. And they're more picked from different places and they certainly have a unity and that unity has especially been developed. But for many years, there were no Old Testament lessons until the 19th century. Lutherans added an Old Testament lesson. And we have really sort of, you know, when we did LSB, we really tried to, to make the Old Testament lesson in the gospel kind of correspond in a prophecy and fulfillment way but there is a sense that having a structured way of reading the scriptures sunday in and sunday out with expectations that people have is a very important way of organizing and giving meaning and 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 real shape to the divine service
1: dr arthur just is seasonal pastor at grace lutheran church in naples florida He's professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he's author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book Heaven on Earth, the Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Todd. When we come back, Hour 2 of Issues, Etc., listener email, and then we'll be teaching a Sunday School lesson with Pastor Tom Baker on Jesus' birth and presentation.
0: You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., cross slash lpr come join lcms worship for the institute on liturgy preaching and church music july 9th through the 12th 2024 at concordia university Nebraska. we'll gather under the theme the songs of deliverance and focus on the psalms together Everything you need to know is at LCMS.org/WorshipInstitute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's LCMS.org/WorshipInstitute. God's mission, right where you are. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues, etc. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start—the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org.
3: The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me.